Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Combine and Them, and you, and me, and everybody. Today we will listen to the story of Dana Kane. Okay, I'm Dana Kane. My daughter Hannah Kane was at Columbine High School the day of the massacre. She did survive, but um, I was one of the first parents, actually, I think kind of one of the early parents on the scene. And uh, Hannah survived Columbine, but in 2018, she wound up dying from alcohol. But her long journey between Columbine and her death was... You know, I, I do think it's connected. So that's why I'm here. Can you uh, share a bit about Anna as a kid, Anna's childhood? How was it? What kind of kid Anna was? Always funny. She was super funny and super creative. Like when she would get together with her friends in like middle school and, and high school, they would get together and they would make films. This is pre-phone. You couldn't just make a shoot a video on your phone. This was like in the early '90s. They were down in the basement. They were shooting. They were making films, and Hannah would be all these characters. One of the the classics was they would do these cooking shows with Chef Romano, and Hannah would put on this ridiculous fake black mustache and this chef hat. Hi, I'm Chef Romano. I'm here today, and it was just hilarious. The whole thing was hilarious. We thought it was hilarious. So Hannah had been involved in some local amateur films. She was just so good at it and such a natural, but you know, it's like, if you gotta go to school for it, if you gotta get a degree for it, she wasn't into that. But they would make films all the time. And then when she was even younger than that, she was constantly like making things. I've got this photo that I will share. She used to make like paper clothes for her dolls. And uh, once she, she made this, paper outfit for her doll. And then she made herself a matching paper outfit. I distinctly remember that, you know, a lot of teenage girls have this sort of magical conversion where when you're in school, they're this funny, awkward little kid. And I had the glasses. She had the braces. She was goofy. She was awkward. Then over the summer, she got her braces off and she got contacts. And when she went back in the fall, freaking supermodel, like gorgeous, like drop dead gorgeous. Just, you know, you've seen girls do that. They do that sometimes. (laughs) So, so um, in high school, she had, uh, she was in her best high school friends were Regina and Melanie. And they were like the trio. And they did everything together. And they were the ones that she'd been making films with and stuff like that. But I mean, you know, they they were kind of wild. <laughs> they were kind of, you know, I, they, they didn't fit in with, you know, high school has its little cliques and groups. They were their own group that was kind of uncategorizable. She wanted to be an actress. She was extremely dramatic. Her whole life. Um, she was really into Xena Warrior Princess, very much so. That was one of her, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, very much into those characters. She wanted to 
to be like that, that kind of an acting role. She, but she wasn't a great student. I remember she would do things like, I remember one day she came in. I, don't, I can't remember, honestly, if this was high school or middle school. She's like, Mom, this is like, you know, eight at night. Mom, I have a term paper to do tomorrow. I'm like, what? <laughs> she was like, it's on the Boston Tea Party. I'm like, how much have you done? Yeah. <laughs> so we're up to like three in the morning. But then it's always things like, well, you know, this paper isn't that great. So we're going to do something really special with the cover page. So <laughs> I went to the kitchen and I got little tea bags, you know, and I opened them up. And Hannah put glue over, you know, the Boston Tea Party. She wrote the letters in glue, and then we sprinkled the tea on it. So the title page was written in tea, and I was hoping that might make a difference in her grade, but I'm not sure that it did. <laughs> she loved animals. She loved animals. And this was her entire life, constantly bringing home different animals. Um, that she found or that came to her or that from Columbine, there was a chicken uh, that she brought home from the Columbine science lab. <laughs> it was a young chicken, but it was no longer a cute little fluffy yellow chick. It was in the awkward. I don't know if you've ever seen a teenage chicken. They're very awkward. <laughs> So she bring, she brings this chicken home from the Columbine Science Lab and names it Maromi. And she didn't see any reason why she couldn't keep the chicken, like, you know, in her bedroom, let it have the run of the house. Well, we quickly found out chickens are really filthy. <laughs> Just horrible. And finally, I'm like, Anna, the chicken can't live in the house. It just so happens in our backyard, the people who lived here before us, had this big uh, dog pen, and we just converted it to a chicken coop. I think she brought home a pair of turtles, soft-shelled turtles, from also from Columbine from the science lab. She was she was just that way. <laughs> was I like the greatest mom? Of course not. You know, was I the worst mom? Definitely not. Um, I think my parenting style leaned a little bit toward the friend thing, but not too much, not too much. One of my things was I really, really wanted to teach my kids about pop culture because that was what I was into. The music, the films, you know, the movies, the songs, the TV shows. And I used to pay them, I would pay them a dollar to watch Star Trek with me. And then one year I said, hey, they were in, they were, she was a teenager, she was in high school. I'm like, girls, I'm going to a Star Trek convention this weekend. I want y'all to come with me. And they're like, ah. <laughs> but when we got there, they discovered there were teenage boys there. So that was it. The science fiction conventions are like family. You know, they're like my people. So I'm like, okay, y'all go on. Yep, you go do your thing. I'll go do my thing. My God, they loved it. They totally loved it. And Hannah wound up, I wound up buying Hannah a Star Trek Next Generation uniform. And somehow on Monday, I convinced her that it would be a really good idea to wear it to school. I'm like, Hannah, she's a Columbine. I'm like, Hannah, you should wear your Star Trek uniform to school. <laughs> it's like, 
what? No, I don't think so. I'm like, oh yeah, it'll be totally cool. Everybody will love it. This stuff. And she came home and she like, and she was like, I'm never speaking to you again. <laughs> so I didn't die. I had seen Titanic with somebody else. Hannah hadn't seen it. <laughs> right. So she went with her friends. I'm like, oh, you're going to love it. Cause it's so much, it's, you know, she's very much like an Enneagram for the tragic romantic. And so I thought she's going to love this. So she goes and sees it with her friends. She comes home. She walks in the door, looks at me, and goes, it sank. <laughs> Titanic sank. That was funny. When a song, when we're in the car and a song comes on the radio, I'd be like, who is this? And if they got it right, I'd give them a quarter because I kept a little thing of quarters in the car. And I would teach them things like, this is how you identify the Beatles. This is how you identify the doors. There's this low, sexy voice, and there's always this prominent, like, church organ, like an organ, like, bam, 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 bam. You know? So I said, listen for the deep voice and the organ, and that's the doors. And it must have sunk in with Hannah because she, you know, I mean, like, the day she died, she had a giant tapestry of Jim Morrison, you know, up in her room. And she had a cat named Morrison. So, so that was good. The song to cross, the space between, to sing you back to my world. A song to sing you back, let me bring you back for a moment, for a moment. A song to bring. I didn't really worry about my kids in the 90s. I mean, when Columbine happened, it was, that was like the first one or the first school shooting that was on my radar. I didn't know it was a thing. No, I wouldn't worry because they were great. I mean, you know, Hannah was great. She was fun. She was funny. She had friends. Everything was great. Uh, no, I wasn't worried at all. You know, we had a great life. When Columbine happened, there weren't there weren't active shooter drills in schools. When I was really little, I might have actually done a duck and cover atomic bomb drill. <laughs> I just not a ludicrous, you know. Like, yeah, I'm gonna get under my desk that I will survive an atomic blast. <laughs> But uh, no, I mean, but even in the 90s, you know, in 99, there weren't active shooter drills because there weren't active shooters. It was not a thing. So no, I was not worried at all. Did not see it coming. The day that Columbine happened, I'm hanging out at home because, you know, I work at home and my mom calls me and says, hey, something's going on at Columbine. I saw something on the news. You better get down there. Something about a bomb threat. So I'm like, oh, you're kidding. Okay, I'll, I'll go get her right now. So I drive to Columbine. It's about, you know, 10 minutes away. And I'm driving down Bulls toward the school, and there's a cop that stops me. And I said, no, it's okay. I got a kid in the school. I'm just here to pick up my daughter. He goes, no, ma'am, you can't, you can't go in there. And I'm like, well, why not? I got a kid in the school. Because I didn't know what was happening. And he goes, no, we still have an active situation there. You have to go 
And at that point, there there weren't any protocols. Nobody knew what to do. There wasn't a plan. So the kids had just evacuated the school and were just pouring out in all directions. I'd see a group of kids that I'd be like, hey, have you seen Hannah Kane? And they all knew her, though that was good. But they all knew her. <laughs> so they said, I saw her, but I don't know where she is now. So I heard that like five times. So I knew she was out. I knew she was okay. I was starting to figure out that this was a big deal. And then eventually I, I found out that they wanted all the parents to go to the Leewood gym. There's a, a school in the neighborhood right across from Columbine. Well, the neighborhood's called Leewood. And there's a school there and they wanted us to go to the gym and wait to be reconnected with our kids and wait for news. So I made my way to the gym and I got to say, that was bad. The communication was bad. You know, I knew my kid was out there somewhere. She was okay. But a lot of these ki- these parents did not know anything. And so we were all in there and all they kept telling us was, you know, y'all need to calm down. I just remember them telling us, calm, st- stay calm, stay calm. It kind of almost seemed like they were getting frustrated with us. Like they were somehow mad at us for like being so freaked out. They had lists coming in of kids that had been located and where they were. I remember, you know, some of those parents, they'd already found that they, they'd already kind of heard through the grapevine that their kid was one of the victims. It was, it was just bad. But I got Hannah and we got home, but that was just, a, just a horrible day. And I remember when I got home, or I turned on the TV, and I remember President Clinton was on the TV talking about Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. And that's when it like really hit me like, oh my God, this is national news. This is a big deal. Because at the t- like I said, you know, it had never happened. I didn't know, like that's my kid's school on the national news. It was just horrific, just horrific. And then finding out how many kids had died and and Mr. Sanders, he was the only teacher who'd been giving her a passing grade that semester. And he's the one that died. And he was so nice. They let us back in to get the belongings and the school hadn't been cleaned up. When they let us back in, and Hannah must have been with me. I just remember walking into the building and it was, there was broken glass. There were like squat check marks on the doors, you know, that they cleared. There was some blood. It was just a mess. And you just walked in and you did not have to be a psychic or an empath to feel it. There was this just incredibly intense, heavy energy. It was there. It was there. I just remember walking through the halls, like holding Hannah, like really close, like kind of like in slow motion, walking back to that classroom so she could get her purse. But it was, ah, that was one of the things about the aftermath that that I would just, I'll never forget that. I didn't go to any of the funerals. Hannah went to a lot of funerals. When I was younger, I 
I didn't really understand funerals. I just thought it was something that you went to if you knew the person and wanted to, I don't, I don't know. I didn't even think about it. That's what's so strange now in hindsight. That wasn't my thing. I didn't know those people. It was, it was weird, but you know, it's like, I didn't really understand funerals until years later when I realized, oh, you're not going for the person who died. You're going for the people who didn't die. Click. But I didn't go. I didn't go to any of them just because I was dumb, just because I was not tuned in, not aware enough. About Hannah, did she know some of the victims? She did because she knew everybody, you know, like she was not in high school for, for a degree. She was in high school for relationships and friendships and people skills and Like I said, she went to a bunch of funerals. I didn't go to them. She did with her friends. She did know them. And I remember her telling me that her and a guy she was dating had once been out on a double date with one of the shooters, but I can't remember which one. I mean, she knew who they were, but she didn't really, she didn't hang out with them. I think that Hannah on some level could relate to to the shooters because she was very empathic and she was always especially in touch with people who were, were feeling left out or depressed or down she was very good at reaching in understanding lifting people up didn't surprise me at all that she wasn't mad at them She would never go on a shooting rampage. But if I had a nickel for every day, she came up, oh, this was the worst day of my life. You know, that kind of drama, that kind of. And she did wind up, you know, having um, some suicide attempts, some more serious than others, most not that serious, but still, still cause for concern. So I think that she could just relate and that she just felt sorry that they didn't get the help that they needed and that they chose that path. I feel kind of like Hannah feels. I mean, they were obviously in a just insanely, literally insanely dark place. I'm not going to try to second guess what was going on in their heads. It was horrible. It was a tragedy. They were super cruel to the people that they did kill, but they were obviously also intending on killing themselves. It's just sad. All of it's sad. I was bullied in school. Of course, I didn't do what they did. You know, I mean, there's other things you can do. I had some unflattering nicknames at certain, but I moved around a lot, you know. And then I finally did hit a point where I was popular. But when I remember when I got popular, I was like, why is she inviting me to her party? You know, she didn't have to invite me just because our moms are friends. It had just like literally never occurred to me that a popular girl could want to invite me to her party because she liked me. Never occurred to me. But no, I no, I, I was not like that in school. Like I said, I kind of had my own friends and I was off in the world of, you know, rock and roll and reading Rolling Stone and Cream and Zoo World. And no, I, I mean, you know, it was okay if they didn't accept me because, yeah. I was off in my own other world anyway. But also, you know, my parents, and I don't know what their parents were like, but my parents 
my mom, when I was growing up, you know, she was just like, you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. You're the greatest. You're the princess. You're so perfect. You're so wonderful. You're, she still says that to me. <laughs> so, and I don't know, maybe they didn't have, I'm sure they didn't have parents as good as mine. Not that their parents were bad, but nobody had parents as good as mine. <laughs> A song to sing you back. Let me bring you back for a moment, for a moment. A song to bring you back. Let me sing you back. Come sit with me for a moment. By nature, I'm a very happy, nonviolent person. The hopelessness is not something I can easily access or relate to, even when I've been at my lowest point, there's always been hope. Even if the hope is just, you know, time's going to pass, this is going to get better. As far as violence goes, I tend to think, you know, there's the old nature versus nurture argument. Did it come from inside you as a person or did you learn it from your environment? I think mostly that one is learning it from your environment. It's hard for me to imagine that any person is born wanting to be violent. I, I don't get that. I think it has to come from, from the environment. Now, the environment, that's not necessarily just your home life. You know, that can be, I don't want to put the blame on video games. You know, I don't want to put the blame on the media. It's the things that you're watching, the things that you're, the things that you're absorbing into your psyche. It's your environment at home, your environment at school, your environment out in the world. Well, at the time, I thought it was just a couple of kids in a really dark place, you know, with access to weapons. I had no idea it was going to keep happening. I mean, it was kind of a wake up call because like, Honestly, nothing that nothing had ever really happened to me. I mean, nothing. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, life had happened, but not like that. And then, of course, you know, Sandy Hook and Parkland and Uvalde and all of them, just all of them. And there were more here in Denver, the STEM school. I mean, there were just there were. It's ridiculous. So I will say that I am very anti-gun at this point in my life. How was your relationship um, when Hannah was an adult? She lived here in my house. Like the basement is like a basement apartment. She's like lived here. So, I mean, we were together a lot. We had a great relationship. We always, always did. I literally don't remember one time when we ever fought or had an argument. One of my favorite Hannah memories when she was growing up is um, I used to do this big chocolate festival at the Broadmoor Resort Hotel in Colorado Springs. It's like literally one of the fanciest places on earth. And Hannah and I, we would drive down there together and we would room together at the Broadmoor at this like insane, like, you know, five-star resort. Every president's been there. There's all this stuff there. And there was, it was so fancy. Like you'd go down to breakfast in the morning and when they served your toast, it would be like, may I butter that for you, ma'am? And we just thought that was hilarious. 
and we go into our room. <laughs> they had like a phone in the bathroom. So I remember like, Hannah, guess where I'm calling from? You know, <laughs> just all this just crazy stuff. And we would always go down there and we would we would play word games all the way down. And then we would play, there was this card game that she loved, that we loved to play together called Phase 10. Hannah loved Phase 10. We loved Phase 10. It's a really fun card game. And I remember one night at the Broadmoor, Hannah said, we should make some more phases. So we, we created Phase 14 and it was our take on the card game. Just so much fun stuff, so much fun stuff. She would come home from work and she'd always she'd always have some story about some wonderful person she met or something. When there were dark times, there was a few times I helped her through like a detox. And I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna go to the store now. I'm gonna get a bunch of Gatorade. I'm gonna get all this stuff. You know, we're gonna get you through this. We're gonna do this together. It was good having her here because a she was usually fun and when she wasn't fun at least i could keep her you know out of jail and and from dying you know so yeah it was good but you know most of it was good it was good she always she thought she was going to die when she was 27 because that's when jim morrison died that's when all these famous people died at 27 so she Figured she was definitely going to die at 27. Well, she didn't. She lived past that, and I don't think she was planning on it because she'd already started this sort of self-destruction, you know, and I said, why am I laughing at it? I don't because if you don't, you know, what else are you going to do? You know, a lot of times this alcoholism thing happens in slow motion. You know, it's like, because everybody, everybody drinks, you know, when they're like late teens or in their 20s, it's perfectly normal. Everybody's doing it. And at first it's hard to tell. It's impossible to tell who's doing it normally, who's, who's like doing it like a regular person and who's like becoming dependent. But when you're an alcoholic, you're expected to drink in this society. There's alcohol ads on TV all the time. And you can't even go to the grocery store without seeing an entire section of booze. And it's like, if you're trying to quit and it's just in your face all the time, it's just so prevalent in society. It just makes it so hard to quit. And sometimes I think, oh, if only it was illegal. But then you remember, you know, they tried that a hundred years ago, really didn't work out so well, not really a viable solution. I don't know what the solution is, but it's just tragic. It's just horrible. But you're always kind of thinking, well, it's just a phase, you know, or something, or, you know, once she breaks up with this guy, she'll stop doing that. Or by the time you realize, oh, she's drinking in a different way than than what I ever did or than what some of her friends are doing. 
you know, when you start realizing like there's these the little bottles and you find out, oh, all of the gin in my in my liquor cabinet or all of the vodka is now actually water and I don't know where the vodka went. Well, you know where it went. Things like that. So it takes a while to really kind of figure out that it's a problem. And even when you kind of figure it, it might be a problem, you don't know how much of a problem it is. I can't definitively say it was Columbine's fault, but it sure didn't help the recurring dreams and everything. I mean, most people who drink, most alcoholics, it's a type of self-medication. They're self-medicating. She did get some therapy after Columbine. Did she get the right therapy? Did she get... And it's hard when you're when you, when you're an actress and you go into therapy. And one thing Hannah was great at is she was the master at this. She could always tell, or she could always imagine what people wanted her to be, how people wanted her to act, and she would be that way, be that person, act that way. I've noticed that a lot of people say, Hannah was my best friend. And here's the thing. They're all true. None of them are lying. That's the way she was. She could bond with somebody like instantly. Um, she could just meet them and bond like that. That was her one of her gifts. I mean, now, sadly, as it turns out, you know, that's when she started drinking more and more. And a lot of those friends also drank. So um, that's just the way it is. So and the friends that didn't drink kind of begin to slowly fall by the wayside. You know what I mean? There was this sort of gradual descent. When she was 20, she was camping with friends and they were all getting just drunk in the mountains like people do here in Colorado. They went out camping. She was very drunk. They all were. She climbed way up in this tree and she fell. And so she's just so tenacious. They were like, you may not walk again. You probably will never be able to have kids. Um, and this, that, and the other thing. Well, of course, she walked again and she got pregnant like within a year after that happened. I'm like, how did you even do that? And she's like, I found a way. <laughs> I think... Almost every parent experiences at some point their kid, their grown kid needs something from them. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's easy. It's like, oh, you need money for that? Here, have money. You know, I mean, for me, that was the easy thing. What was the the hor most horrible thing was when they need the help that you can't give them, like they need the rehab or they need the thing that they have to do for themselves that you can't do for them. That's what is so heartbreaking what's really frustrating i don't know how it is in france but here in the states it is like almost impossible to help somebody get the help they need everything is set up to where no she has to do it she has to ask for it well newsflash she's not going to you know because they hit a point Alcoholics hit a point where their brain is so compromised that they can't make rational decisions for themselves. This is end stage, you know. And she was getting into fights with her friends that were 
that made no sense. She was, I would hear her on the phone sometimes. I heard her telling my friend, well, see what you did. Now my mom hates me. And I was like, what? Who is she talking to? What is she talking about? You know, every single day, you know, I tell her I love her every single day. You know, what is the most frustrating thing is her father and I, when we realized she had a problem, and this was decades ago, dec- like 20 years ago, we we both said, okay, well, you know, let's get on the phone. I'll call these people. You call these people. We'll just see what we need to do to get her you know, into a rehab facility. And we were just like, what do you, what do you mean we can't get her into a rehab facility? And then they would, they would say like, well, it has to be court ordered by a judge. So it would be like, oh, okay, look, she just got a traffic ticket. She's going into court. Now we go into court. We stand up, we talk to the judge, judge, please do this. And the judge is like, oh, I can't do that. It has to be like from the medical community you know so the next time she was taken into the er the hospital for something then we would race over there saying quick do the evaluation do something so that we can get her into rehab and then uh, oh we have to wait 24 hours and of course by that time she's sobered up and then when they do the psyche valve and she's an actress she's like oh i'm i'm a perfectly normal human being i'm ready to get back with my life so it was like we, we couldn't get through. And then it would be like the cops when, you know, the cops are, are there and you're there and you're saying, please just arrest her, please. You know, and it's like, nobody can do anything. The medical community can't do it. The psychiatric community can't do it. The judge can't do it. The cops can't do it. Only she can do it. And, you know, I went to one, of, I finally went to one of those groups and was hesitant, but I went to one of those groups that's is it, what's it called? Al-Anon? It's the group for people who are like family members of alcoholics. And I thought, good, they're going to tell me what to do. They're going to give me the concrete steps. I mean, Colleen, I'd written to my Congresswoman, Diana DeGette. I'm like, hey, I can help do this. We need to change these laws. What can be done? Of course, you know, you get a form letter nothing ever happens. But, you know, I literally kept trying everything I could possibly try to force her into help. And even that group that I went to, you know, all these other people, I'm like, oh, they're going to have some tips. They're going to have some pointers. You go in there and you know what they're doing? They're just like praying for the strength to realize that you can't do anything. And it's like, are you freaking kidding me? This again, you know, it has to come from her. And so I remember, honest to God, the happiest month of my life was June, 2018. Hannah comes up the stairs and she says, mom, I think I found this great treatment facility and I would like to go. So I'm just like, let's go right now. So I just like, I didn't want to give her any time to change her mind. So I just like threw out my shoes. And we raced out to the car and we went and I signed her up and I got her in. This was the thing we'd waited for, for decades. Hannah was in rehab and then she got out and it was great. But, you know, it didn't last. That was June, June to July, 2018. And she was dead in October, 2018. I'm sure it was a detox 
that was unsupervised that um, killed her. She started having seizures and I got called downstairs and, you know, I was with her when she, when she died. And we were just holding her, telling her, no, I love you, I love you, I love you. So she was, she was in ICU for a week, um, never had any response. But what that did was that gave all of her friends time to come to the hospital. When we decided to finally just let her go, it was, uh, you know, we were all around her and somehow somebody started singing this goofy little song that they had made up. And then we all wound up just laughing and talking. And, you know, it was this really nice send off when she kind of finally stopped breathing. And she was literally surrounded by like everybody that just loved her the most. Did uh, Anna's passing make you more aware of the fragility of life? Oh, yeah. So, right. So when she was in the hospital, I would tell people, you know, you need to come down. You need to see Hannah. Please come see her. Come tell her you love her. Come tell her you love her. Because I was of the opinion that she could be gone any day because she, she kept going into the ER with these things. And I just didn't know which time was going to be the last time. I would tell her daughter, Athena, and I would tell her friends and I would tell, you know, people who maybe she had some stupid fight with or whatever, you know, I'd be like, you, you need to come down here. You need to tell her you love her now. She needs to hear it. And even, you know, people were mad at her because she was being unreasonable. And I think even Athena was upset with her at that point in time. I said, Athena, put it aside get in there, tell her you love her. And it's just so important because you never know. And speaking about the fragility of life, it's like, well, I've always been the kind of person I tell everybody, oh, I love you. I, I sign business notes. Like when I'm sending out an email about one of my chocolate festivals, I'll be like, oh, we're having the chocolate festival. And you know, it's going out to 8,000 people and I'll sign it. Love, Dana. And that's a conscious decision. That's a conscious decision because And some people might think it's stupid or misplaced, but it's not because everybody needs it. Everybody needs love. And it's my way of just pushing a little more out there, just pushing a little more out there. For all I know, somebody might get that or it might be the only love they get that day, you know? Hopefully not, but it's like, it's just, I do. I love my work. I love my festivals. I love the people that come to it. It's, it's not a lie. It's true. Love, Dana. And so it's just like, I'm always telling people I, I love them. around. And then in it, and love, undone, all undone. Facebook is one of the things that really helped initially, just because all the support, I mean, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, so being so supportive and so loving and so caring, that was huge. The initial thing, I mean, the first thing to do is just get past the initial, which is horrible, 
horrible. I mean, you know, just opening your eyes in the morning is just like, it's like literally like falling off a cliff every morning when you realize, oh my God. And it's just like, and there's no, it's just horrible. I mean, initially after she died, I could not see a little girl with brown hair, which there's a lot of them walking around. So it's, it's very much, you know, horrible if you can't go out into public for sure. There might be a little girl with brown hair, <laughs> but that doesn't trigger me anymore. What triggers me now about Hannah? Sometimes, um, oh, I know what triggers me. It's music because no matter how okay I think I am, like yesterday, Saturday, I went to my, one of my granddaughters had a piano recital. There's all these kids playing piano and just certain music. And there wasn't even any lyrics. But certain music, just if it's the right, the right frequency or the right melody or the right something, it's so powerful that it just cuts right through. It just beelines into your heart. You know, music does that. It can do that. And there's no defense against it. There's no defense. So I cried through half of the piano recital. Of everything in the world, the thing that like short, just shortcuts right through into your heart and your feelings is music. Music can do that. Um, there was one song that I wrote um, to sing you back that played at the at the memorial service, and that was another thing that helped. But anyway, yes, processing my grief through music, and then that Christmas I wrote a Christmas song about her not being there, you know, just sad, just sad. So I remember the guy that was mixing it said, but this is, you know, can we jazz it up so people have some way to like escape emotionally from the, and I'm like, no, nobody can escape. <laughs> it's gotta just be that sad. thought the first Christmas was going to be horrible. But, you know, I wrote the Christmas song. I processed that. And what I wound up doing is, oh, here's another one of my major coping, coping mechanisms is brain shutdown. That's really effective. I mean, it sounds ridiculous and like something you shouldn't do, but it totally works. Just total escapism, totally shut it all out. And the first Christmas I decided Okay, I'm going to just watch Christmas movies. That's it. I'm not going to think about anything. And Elf was Hannah's favorite Christmas movie was Elf. So I hadn't actually seen it. So I watched Elf in 2018. It was so good. And I thought it was going to be hard. And then, you know, the rest of my family is still here. And just seeing them is such a joyful thing. So there's all of us together that are still around and nice to the and everybody loved hannah and mrs hannah and there's like you know like at my house we have our like whole shrines like built to hannah with all the pictures and the things and that um so yeah no christmas is not as bad as i thought christmas is doable it doesn't go away but it gets better don't let yourself be defined 
by that death. Don't let it define you, but you will find a way to make eventually the grief, the, the grief starts out and it just consumes your whole body. It just consumes your entire essence, your whole being. All you are is that grief. But eventually it shrinks and it finds a little house. It's like, I used to picture it as almost like a dog bed in my heart, like a little dog bed where the grief could just kind of curl up and stay and live there and sleep there and just try to get comfortable. Just try to make the grief comfortable within your within your person after hannah died me and several other people had some really profound like mystical experiences that were pretty convincing that she was there in spirit in some way well sometimes it's a dream you know, where she comes in a, in a dream, but it's like, not like a dream. So Hannah was really into chickens that, that I, yeah, I told you about the calamari chicken. So I remember I was in the car, I was driving and I was crying and I said something to Hannah. And then when I opened my eyes up in the sky, I mean, it was, it was blatantly obvious. There was this cloud. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. It was in the shape of like a bright pink chicken, which is not really normal for a cloud. <laughs> just, then that just made me just burst out laughing. But there was always just, you know, she's always, and then one of her friends said, yeah, she's going to be throwing chickens at us. And so I always remembered that. What there was, I was in the, I was in the bathroom, right? And I'm think, I was thinking about Hannah and I was all bummed out. I was totally depressed. And I said, well, I said, I need some kind of sign. And then I looked down and there in the trash can <laughs> was this big box right on top that was like a, you know, McChicken. <laughs> it was like a box from McDonald's, like a grilled, grilled McChicken. And it was chicken. And I was just like, how did she do that? How did she do that? <laughs> It's just fun. Yeah, the other thing was uh, during those first months and we had her celebration of life, this was the thing that we did her celebration of life. So being an event planner and her uh, stepmom, Karen, also owns an event company. That definitely gave me something to do. Planning the whole thing got me through those first couple of months. I'm in my wheelhouse. That's what I do. And it was total immersion in Hannah, but it was immersion in Hannah in a way specifically that was going to honor her, that was going to bring her people together. So I planned this whole celebration of life around her and her boyfriend had said, well, she told me that she wanted everybody to wear pink. So I'm like, okay, then. So I put the word out, look, she wanted everybody to wear pink. I know some of y'all don't have pink. So I bought like, you know, like 200 pink baseball caps and a bunch of pink pashmina scarves and some pink lapel rose flower pins. So that I said, never fear. Even if you don't have pink when you come in, we'll have pink for you. I think that was one of the things. And, and then I had jigsaw puzzles made because she loved working jigsaw puzzles. She'd work a puzzle. 
puzzle. And then she would like tape it together and put it up on her wall. So I had jigsaw puzzles made from pictures of Hannah doing things. And so I had those out on all the like tables out in the lobby area. And we just had, we just had the whole thing kind of planned. I had some music. One of the things that I wanted to put for sure into this ceremony, and I told the, uh, the preacher, I said, I definitely want to tell people that she died because of alcohol, because I knew a lot of people in that room were alcoholics. One of the greatest things is that over the years since then, several people, even people that didn't know her that well, but that had read my posts on Facebook about her, several people and some of her friends have told me that they stopped drinking. It was because of the birth. That really makes me happy. That makes me really happy. That you know that was their wake up call, and they they pulled themselves together because they saw what had actually happened. A song to sing you back. Let me bring you back. Let me sing you back for a ball. A song to bring you. Back, let me sing you back. Come sit with me for a moment. I think I've always wanted to make the world a better place. Um, but one thing that it definitely did was it really connected me to this whole other level of humanity because I'd never had, I mean, you know, I'd never had anything that horrible happen to me. One of the nice things <laughs> is you feel like, oh, well, this was the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. So if I can handle this, I can literally handle anything. You rebuild yourself around that, that, that sadness. And um, it can be done. I mean, I'm living a good life. I'm happy. My whole family's here. So, so we all get together and, you know, everybody's great. It's all warm and loving and all that stuff. Well, my relationship with Hannah now is, in a lot of ways, I mean, it's the same as it's always been. I mean, it hasn't really changed except that I... Pretty sure her brain is probably cleared. Her thinking is cleared. So she's back to her core self. But the thing with me and Hannah was there was, there was never any doubt about how we felt about each other. There was never any, anything unresolved. It, it's made me more empathic. It's made me more understanding. It's made me even more, more likely to cut people some slack you know, uh, just try to imagine what they might be going through in their lives because you don't know. And um, so I think it's had a good effect on me in that way. I'm a better person. How do you think we can help kids believe in their lives, love life? Just keep showing them the good stuff. Keep exposing them to the good stuff, you know? 
Like I'm, I mean, my kids are going to see that Care Bears movie, you know, because that's the kind of thing I want to infuse into their psyches. And, you know, that was something so great about, you know, Hannah's generation uh, that their, their whole childhood was infused with so much of that positive, you know, this cartoons and stuff, the Care Bears and the Strawberry Shortcake and the My Little Ponies and everything was just so sunny and nice and it was all about caring and sharing and it was not like me growing up with, you know, Tom and Jerry and Roadrunner. <laughs> but I guess I turned out okay. It's like the 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 news is so dark. One of the events I I own and and operate is the Unicorn Festival. And it's actually right next to Columbine. It's actually right next to the Columbine Memorial. It's in Clement Park in Little. It's right there. It's just this massive event with unicorns mermaids fairies dragons you know the world's a magical place and it's like every toddler from like a three-state area shows up for it and they love it and the families it's like the family event of the summer and it's just it's specifically there to counteract what's going on in the world so that they can come spend one weekend where they can ride a unicorn get their face painted by a fairy splash around with the mermaid they can they can just live in that magical world that in many ways i feel is every bit as real as you know the world we're shown on the news so i just think it's important to make sure that your kids see both sides not just the not just the crap the world's a magical place anything can happen there's so much just love and beauty and kindness. Thank you so much for listening to Columbine, them, and you, and me, and everybody. Take care, and you'll be hearing from us again very soon.